This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, Yoa Charmila Ganesan and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, rethinking how we engage with indigenous cultures in the context of tourism. First up, we'll be hearing from Juita Tatan Wan, who champions indigenous cultural initiatives. And later, we speak to Daniel Tio, who has started a travel initiative with partners of with partners from the Orang Asli community. We want to hear from you. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U mobile number zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08 and our conversation today um, was inspired by an article in the New York Times uh, which talks about an increasing trend of uh, travellers wanting more ways to engage with Indigenous communities when they travel, uh, but at a more immersive level. So, um, of course, we are probably familiar with the typical tourist-led uh, imagery that we get when we talk about indigenous communities in various parts of the world, right? Um, things like costumes that are put in the foreground, um, quote-unquote cultural performances that you know groups of tourists can sit and watch. Perhaps you might get to taste a particular dish, you'll get souvenirs, you get to pose with implements, right? Um, but what this newer trend kind of foregrounds is viewing members of the Indigenous communities as partners, um, as a more respectful and sustainable way of creating travel experiences that both highlight Indigenous experiences, but also don't sort of minimize that this is a community with roots and ties to the place that they exist in. Yeah, I think also that we've had a, a bit of a trajectory. This is not Absolutely new. But what, what we're seeing now is the success of, you know, what it's called Indigenous-owned and led experiences. And there's, in fact, a value that can be put on it, right? So one estimate is something like 40 billion US dollars worth of so-called owned and uh, Indigenous-led experiences. So this is something of a new segment, I think, in the tourism um, sort of universe of services and experiences that can be um, uh, kind of experienced. And I think what's interesting is that it comes along with this idea that we need to not just purchase our experiences, but we can also learn from it. But the question is, how many of us actually want to learn when we're on holiday? Do we just want to sit uh, and sink into, uh, you know, into the, the sand and just enjoy ourselves rather than have to learn? So maybe the trick is that it sh- it didn't it needn't necessarily be couched as learning, right? I think increasingly there is a desire for people who travel to want experiences that are meaningful in some way or the other, and. I think what this uh, interest indicates is that there is more meaning when you have someone from the community engaging with you as an equal. Um, So this actually a lot of the examples in the article are from New Zealand. And perhaps that's not very surprising because uh, New Zealand, perhaps more than most other countries, has done quite a bit um, to respect and foreground Maori culture. And so really, I think I wanted to bring this back to Malaysia and what it might look like for us to think about foregrounding our various indigenous communities, but in a way that, uh, again, um, doesn't just turn it into a spectacle or a cash grab, but instead makes it meaningful for the people who are engaging in these. Yeah, so so again, because you mentioned the, the context in which a lot of this is coming out of the, the whole uh, the experience of New Zealand, the Maori community is very empowered, I think, uh, both politically and socially and culturally, uh, because of who they are and what that particular history in, in, in New Zealand has meant for them. Uh, it's not true of all Indigenous people. 
people, a lot of indigenous communities are in fact marginalized. And unfortunately, uh, there are people from the outside, as it were, who have exploited uh, the exotic of uh, and the unusual in uh, indigenous cultures uh, for their own uh, purposes, right? And so they have turned, as you, you know, you kind of alluded to earlier, Shamila, you know, they've turned the indigenous uh, communities and their culture into a, a product that can be hung as an ornament uh, rather than something that you experience and engage with. So, yeah, so it is interesting that perhaps today when a lot of indigenous uh, young people are empowered through education and such, that they might be the ones to lead this kind of turn in the way tourism related to their communities operates. So what we're going to be talking about today is really how to do this in a local context to create travel experiences that include indigenous communities, um, but in a, in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is equal. Um, and we want to hear from you. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Business filled minds. BFM eighty nine point nine. It's 6.14, you're listening to Insight Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And we're talking about how to engage with Indigenous cultures when it comes to travel and tourism. And we want to hear from you. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? You can call 777 send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now on the line is Juvita Tatanwan, co-founder of the Tuyang Initiative and executive producer for My Living Arts. Juvita, always good to have you on. Hi. Hi, Shamila. Happy New Year. Same to you. Um, so how would you describe the ways in which tourists and tourism has engaged with Indigenous communities in Malaysia? Um, in a few different ways, I'd say. Um, you know, we've got the touch and go cultural village tourism centres type activities. Uh, to indigenous culture showcase at travel trade fairs globally, you know, with people standing around or dancing in indigenous uh, costumes. Um, and I say that because a lot of time it does not necessarily make up of people from the communities. Um, and other ways, I uh, also include people that um, go to our communities. So the hosting of visitors and tourists um, in our more rural locations, spending time in our village or longhouses and actually immersing themselves in everyday life for a few days to a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, those are some of the ways that I can think of for the moment. Juwita, do you think there's a difference between how domestic tourists and international visitors view uh, Indigenous communities as a part of their own experience when they travel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for some international visitors, uh, while they appreciate the culture, I think they're also a little more curious uh, to try different things, ask questions. Um, and I think there's also a bit more awareness about the imbalance that Indigenous communities and culture face, like what, what is being faced. Uh, but for domestic tourists or visitors, I think they may have some preconceived notions about Indigenous communities. Uh, you know, obviously it didn't help that our own tourism ads oversimplified us, you know, with talents on boats, standing, you know, rowing in our regalia. Uh, so they kind of have this set expectations of what they want to see. Um, and if they don't see that, they get a little disappointed. So I think the idea of what um, Indigenous cultures uh, within this tourism context is probably quite a familiar image for many people, right? This includes things mm -hmm. like um, uh, activities or communities uh, sharing. Uh, okay, so they, they're short. They may involve a meal or a cultural performance. There'll be souvenirs. Mm -hmm. uh, you touched on some of it, the, the sort of touch and go experience in some ways. What are mm -hmm. the shortcomings of this specific approach? Well, I honestly, I feel that they miss out on the nuance of the people um, and the culture that they're interacting with, you know. And if anything, it creates, I think, a bit of a distance. Um, you know, it, it doesn't help when, you know, you're sitting down and having a meal and people just randomly appear on stage in colorful, big 
costumes or regalia and then they do a sing and dance and then they just kind of disappear, you know? Um, it, it makes it seem like the people and culture are not interested to engage when that's not actually the case. So I think in these situations, again, I believe like most likely the people may not be from the community or the culture themselves. Uh, so that's why it's harder for them to advocate or share about the community as freely or as easily as someone from the community themselves. You know, in, in other scenarios, um, after uh, within the village setting, for example, uh, even if someone presents a song, they can come to you and explain to you the meaning of it. But in this kind of commercial setting, uh, it's, it's rarely the case. Now, in your work, have you seen an uptick in interest in Indigenous culture uh, from tourists? Uh, have there been requests for activities that are more driven by, say, knowledge or immersion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think especially because a big part of our tourism pool um, has been in the use of indi our Indigenous people and culture. Um, and yes, I think tourists also want to spend time getting to know our communities and taking the chance to learn um, from the sharing of knowledge from the people. Um, and there have been an increase for uh, even on our part, you know, uh, requests to host or organize more skills-based workshops with our practitioners, you know, be it in weaving um, to playing musical instruments to bead making, you know, and um, these kind of two to three hour session would allow them to hear and learn directly from uh, practitioners whose culture it comes from and uh, their sharing of their own stories. So, yeah. And there are so many different aspects of Indigenous arts and culture that can be highlighted, right? And there are so many communities uh, mm. that have this potential. What are some activities that would translate most immediately, you think? Mm. Uh, I personally think some of the quickest ones would be music, food and craft. Um, and the reason is that it would allow one to delve into the different communities you know, language, the way they think, uh, the land where they're from, the surroundings, you know, the limitations. So like, um, for example, the food for some of the riverine or seaside indigenous communities use uh, a lot of fish, you know, in the dish versus if you're from inland or highland communities, you know, we use mostly um, hunted meats. So even the way it is stored or prepared, um, from the olden days reflect our surroundings. You know, this is like pre-refrigeration <laughs> era. And, you know, the fish used in, let's say, for example, the Milano community, as they are riverine seaside, they use a lot of lime and they kind of make a kind of a ceviche called umai. Um, and then for the inland or the highland communities like mine, we use a lot of rice and salt to store our meat. You know, and we call it kasam. So, yes, there's a... I think these activities... Um, and if they are hosted by the community themselves, I think they would be able to share these, you know, these nuances and, and stories. Duita, have you ever experienced or seen someone sort of, or tourists uh, essentially converted uh, from the more superficial types of travel to something deeper? And what would have led them to make that shift in choice? I think it's just the opportunity to be able to sit down and and have a have a conversation with uh, with someone from the community, because I think again the challenge has been um, you know the, a preconceived notion of of what indigenous people and culture would be you know ah oh, it's it's backward it's you know it's not relevant to the to the current times and but when you sit down and and have conversations with uh, different people from different indigenous communities, from different age and backgrounds, you'll be able to see that there are similarities in terms of things like aspirations. But at the same time, there's a lot of nuance in, in the way um, people from the community is brought up, the thinking that led to how they carry themselves and, you know, the, uh, and, and, and things like that. So uh, we have had people who, you know, originally like, yeah, okay, you know, yeah, um, traditional music, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, but once they sit in front of the instrument and hear it or hear a song, they change their mind. You know, it's something that they they cannot describe, they cannot explain because uh, it's something that they've never experienced. So, so yeah. 
I wanted to touch on something Sharad actually brought up before the break um, about this notion of um, Indigenous communities first needing to be empowered within a particular country before being able to, uh, I suppose, participate in these sorts of travel experiences, you know, in a way that isn't exploitative, for example. Um, do you think that in Malaysia, or rather, I guess my question is, how much more work do we have to do here in Malaysia before we're at that level? Well, I think we're in a position where uh, we don't think that deeply about about these issues because uh, it feels like everything's all right, you know, uh, because, you know, in the context of Sarawak and Sabah, uh, Indigenous people make up a large, a large uh, chunk of, of the people and therefore there is no real issue. Uh, but if we take a step back from from a from a national standpoint, from a national narrative, we're actually not really talked about for a very long time, um, and a lot of things, uh, a lot of misconceptions then arise, uh, a lot of stereotyping, um, and that is something that uh, you know it's taking some time uh, to shift. Uh, but there are little steps that you know we are. As people who are like you know, for ourselves in our organization, we're trying to advocate for more uh, representation um, in terms of chances for our practitioners to participate in, uh, for example, um, creative development processes. You know, be it in uh, ideation of making films or or, or music or you know, uh, because these are things that a lot of people appreciate from afar and want to help by telling these stories, but the opportunities to really immerse themselves into the culture is not there. Uh, and that's for, that's why we are trying to bring uh, more uh, representation of our practitioners where possible. So New Zealand is often brought up as an example of how to meaningfully integrate Indigenous cultures and knowledge into travel and tourism and that industry. Uh, are there other examples you can think of, other countries where we can learn from? Um, well, I mean, the, the New Zealand model is one that I am uh, relatively familiar with uh, because we have worked with some of the New Zealand uh, agencies. Um, and just to kind of give some context, uh, they're... they're uh, how they do it is that they have a, a Maori council that oversees uh, the use of Maori culture for various purposes. You know, from everything from business uh, to the commercialization of of uh, certain certain communities' uh, practice. So, anything that has to do with their culture or in regards to that uh, their community, they will go through this council. And um, I think that's something that um, would be interesting to emulate. Um, although it will be a little trickier because, you know, we are made up of a lot of different, um, very different indigenous communities here in, um, in, on the island, um, you know, be it in Sarawak or Sabah. Uh, but yeah, I think um, especially for those, uh, for, com for people from outside um, the community who want to uh, participate um, in the use of uh, certain cultural heritage elements from our indigenous communities. Um, I think a, a model or a method to, to seek permission um, is, is a way uh, I think we could consider. Um, obviously, we do not have a, 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 a formal council that does this. Um, but, you know, it, this is something that I feel maybe we could start exploring um, as a way uh, to ensure that our our cultural heritage do not uh, get exploited uh, or misused. Juvita, we have about a minute left. What would you like to leave us with? Um, I think something very simple that everyone can think about uh, when working with Indigenous cultures, uh, you know, um, is to consider including people from the culture, uh, you know, and... Uh, if someone is commissioned or hired to represent our indigenous communities, be it at a cultural village or a tourism information center, have them be from the community. You know, not just people wearing costumes and people um, that way, you know, they can make a real difference when they share about who they are, you know, where they come from, what it's like. And, and you know, maybe even teach some phrases in their language. 
Um, and, you know, the same can be said for when someone is hired for a corporate gig or ads or film, films or music, you know. And yes, our culture is beautiful and there are now a lot of resources um, available for it. But you can't possibly commercialize or write a story about Indigenous people and culture if there's no inclusion um, from the from the people and possibly think that you're doing justice, you know. And um, as with any representation and stories, real insights are I, what I feel is the most important. So, um, and in our culture, some would say it's also it boils down to something as simple as a sign of respect. So, um, and if you need help identifying the right people, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to help connect on this island. We're happy to do that. Yeah. Juvita, thanks for speaking with us today. That was Juvita Tatanwan, co-founder of the Tuyang Initiative, executive producer for My Living Arts, weighing in on how to meaningfully engage with Indigenous culture uh, under, you know, when it comes to travel or tourism. Let us know, would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us and keep it here, BFM 89.9. Break from monotony, BFM 89.9. It's 6.39, you're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And we're talking today about tourism, but particularly tourism or travel that engages with Indigenous culture and communities. Um, and this comes from an article in uh, the New York Times, and they reference, among others, uh, examples from New Zealand, for example. Uh, examples from New Zealand. <laughs> examples from New Zealand, um, where this notion of what it might mean for you to travel and learn more about Indigenous culture is extended beyond just your tokenistic performances and, and souvenirs, and instead it's about really engaging, learning their stories and their lifestyle and what, um, you know, what the roots of that culture might be. Um, and so we thought it would be interesting to look at that through a local lens as well. Um, we heard earlier from Juvita Tatanwan, who spoke about uh, the importance of um, engagement, the importance of foregrounding experiences, having a person uh, from the Indigenous community that you're highlighting in those initiatives. But we do want to hear from you as well. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? And do you make a point of learning or engaging with Indigenous cultures, whether this is through art or food or music? Um, is that something you're interested in? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, tweet us at BFM Radio. Sherrod, actually, we didn't get to our own, you know, thoughts on this earlier. Is this something that you've generally made a point of doing when you travel? Yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, I think initially, um, when I'm traveling overseas, where the question of Who's indigenous? Say you travel to Thailand. I mean, who are we talking about when we talk about the indigenous? When we travel to Thailand, but I think the for the idea that um, you know I wanted to understand something of a non non urban people, say the tribal peoples, uh, people who represent an older form of life or a different way of life than than contemporary society. That didn't interest me initially, and not for many years. Until I started to read about history and started to see how understanding even the contemporary or the modern required me to un to go back much further. And that, in fact, uh, indigenous cultures in the contemporary world, as it were, are representative of this long history. I mean, they're not from that history, but I mean, but they have a trajectory that uh, that comes from there. And so I started to appreciate, you know, um, that lineage and only because of that, I think I've made a transition from being interested in, uh, you know, going to a museum of contemporary art or watching contemporary performances to wanting to see something older and from a very different um, space, a different cultural and social space. So... Actually, I have I have some thoughts on what you just said. Um, I think first I'll I'll talk about my own experiences. I think I've generally been really interested in exactly that the um, cultural forms that have a longer history in many ways that that predate a sort of uh, this this written history or what we might think of in in modern day as art, right? Um, 
because I actually genuinely enjoy, for instance, when I was in Australia, uh, going to various big and small Aboriginal art gallery spaces that not just do it in this, because the truth is in Australia, you can get what they call Aboriginal art in every souvenir store. But more often than not, a lot of those are, are very um you know, they're, they're cheesy. They don't necessarily give you a, a realistic idea of the community struggles. Um, so I very much appreciated the opportunity to go to uh, whether museums or galleries that make a point of engaging with people from Aboriginal communities, having them tell their own stories and their art. Um, I also very much enjoyed the, uh, in Washington, D.C., actually I wanted to get the name right because there's a little bit of controversy over that, the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, which for the name is controversial, uh, but actually do a very good job of uh, presenting uh, Native American cultures. And what I actually truly enjoyed is that their their food court has Native American cuisine, including traditional grains that they cooked with, traditional meats that they use, that they still eat. So I enjoyed that aspect. But I did go to that same canteen. Yes. Um, but I went to the museum, the Smithsonian uh, Museum that was devoted to space and air travel. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting. So, <laughs> so, but, so you went to the canteen, but not the museum. Yeah, because uh, I yes, had it's, limited it's time. Enough, yeah. so, so this, I'm trying to explain my mind, right? In a, when I was short of time, of course, if I had all the time in the world, I would have done both museums. But because I was interested in technology, I went for the, the tech, uh, uh, you know, museum, and then I, um, and then because I, t- I was told that the food was much better in that canteen, I went to that canteen. It is true, the food's very good, but but actually, that's what I wanted to bring up. I think, though, there is a um, perhaps an assumption that when we talk about indigenous arts and culture, that it almost always has to be quote unquote traditional, that it's going to be cultural in a very particular way. And I don't think that's necessarily true because if, for instance, we look at even in Malaysia, the works of Shakoyok, um, yes, they have their roots in traditional Orang Asli stories uh, or, or medium, uh, but the works are very contemporary. The works are uh, commenting on contemporary issues and contemporary challenges or, or, or experiences that people from the Orang Asli community might have. Uh, similarly, uh, Pangrok, Sulap from, uh, Pangrok Sulap from Sabah and their art is so contemporary. If you're a fan of comic books, if you're a fan of graffiti, um, you would find their work appealing. So, I mean, all I wanted to say is that the notion of engaging with Indigenous culture or communities doesn't have to automatically mean something old-fashioned. True. And this is where I think there's a lot of sort of, we need to struggle over definitions and what we mean by indigenous, what we mean by native, what we mean by a non-tri- you know tribal peoples and, and then urban peoples and so on, for, you know. But uh, I must say that, you know, my ideas changed and I remember being at another museum where I had to choose between 19th century art and, in fact, th- this was a Russian museum and, uh, and the history of indigenous uh, Russia and the sort of, uh, and I chose that. So I went to the basement and spent all my oh, time. I would be fascinated because actually I, I don't know a lot about the indigenous cultures of Russia. Yeah, And, and so if I were traveling, I think I would make a point of being able to experience something like that. Yeah, and I must say, I, I, I owe it all to a book called Natasha's Dance uh, by, you know, Alana uh, Fijes, you know, about, uh, about that history. And I think once you, and this is it, right? At the end of the day, when we travel, so many of us just want to relax and we want to have a good time. It's a break from work. So Travel, I don't think, in most people's minds, is associated and and is promoted as a way of deepening an understanding of the world. It's not really, uh, and so. Th- but the the there's this margin where people are trying to do that and start to, uh, a conversation about how it it could be so much better to try and experience the, the spaces that you're traveling to uh, through so-called indigenous culture uh, is, I think, a real step in the right direction. It's just that it's not dominating the market. Well, let us know. Um, are you interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? Do you make a point of seeking out um, indigenous cultures uh, when, when you're in different places, or in Malaysia for that matter? Uh, and how do you engage with them? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. 
Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9. It is 6.54. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And we're talking about travel and how to travel while engaging with indigenous cultures meaningfully in an immersive way. Um, we want to hear from you. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? Do you make a point of getting to know or learning more about indigenous culture when you travel? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. We have a... Um, um, message from Tony who says, I lived and worked in Vancouver, um, Vancouver, Canada in the 80s, and most of my free time was spent with the Indigenous people where I helped out with putting up lodge poles and totems. This was the Haida people. My interests lay with that part of Canadian history. Tony, this sounds like such an interesting experience to have, um, and it's really an opportunity to. Um, Actually, I was going to say get hands-on experience. It's literally hands-on, putting up lodge poles and the like. Um, and I think, one, I feel like these sorts of experiences um, maybe require you to be able to spend some time and, and do research and uh, look up, you know, how is it possible to have these who you're engaging with? Um, and it does sort of, it does sort of, I suppose it strikes me that to be this kind of traveller, also means that you're the kind of person who's willing to put in that kind of extra work or research. Yeah, I think you you know kind of hit the nail on the head there, Shamila, with the question of time. Because, Tony, I understand you, you say you lived and worked there. So it sounds like you were there for a long time. And you referenced the 80s. So that's at least a decade, potentially, that you were there. So, uh, so that sets up a very different uh, set of possibilities, isn't it? Whereas, you know, we criticize sort of a, the touch-and-go experience experience. Uh, but for people who are literally spending two or three days in a space, a new space, a new country, what else could they possibly do, right? And so we spoke earlier about museums, because that is kind of an easy entry point. It brings everything together. It creates these narratives that are easy to consume. If you go to a really good um, museum, but, uh, but it is it has its deficits, right? It suggests that uh, indigenous cultures are uh, only about the past. They're dead and they don't have a living uh, dimension to them. So the question is, uh, if you have more time, and how much time would you need to have something much more immersive and much more meaningful uh, within the framework of a... Uh, within the framework of a travel to a you know to a distant land if you're going there for a holiday well I think it might depend on what you want out of your travel right because some people are the are the type of traveler for whom I go somewhere in the three days that I'm there I want to be able to see 10 different sites right whereas there are there are others and increasingly I think there are more and more of the type of traveler for whom I want to go somewhere. I want to get a meaningful slash unique experience out of which I learn something. I get to uh, learn something about people who are different from me. Um, and I think that's the kind of traveler for whom this is interesting. And, you know, it's not just about going to a distant land because I'm guilty of this as well. I've lived in Malaysia practically my whole life. I don't know that I've invested enough time to even say, think about doing this over a weekend. How much uh, immersive experience do I have with the indigenous communities who live in the Klang Valley? Um, and, and, you know, I think that's actually worth thinking about. It doesn't need to be only when you have four days in an expensive trip that you've planned for. You could do it in your own country as well. Indeed. And, you know, the, the question, of course, though, coming back to what's available, right? And how do we think creatively, at least for the tourism sector in this, is, is that I have seen over the years an attempt to to do precisely what the, the kind of like dominant mode of travel is, right? And say, well, do something different. And you know, and it comes in different. I think in in forms that sometimes surprise you, right? Say, for instance, people who volunteer at uh, the at Mother Teresa's home in Calcutta do it because they say, okay, I want to travel to India, but I also want to do some good. So sometimes it's the engagement at that level, right? It's engaging with different societies. Not quite uh, the question of indigeneity or your know, native cultures, but again, it's what is available that is easy to access, at least from a distance. 
assistance when you're trying to plan things. Keep your thoughts coming. Uh, we are asking you, would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? Do you make a point of engaging with Indigenous cultures? You can call 77332900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. It is 7.08. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And we've been talking about travel experiences that engage with Indigenous cultures and communities in a meaningful, respectful way. Um, we want to hear from you. Would you be interested in deeper cultural experiences when you travel? Do you make a point of engaging with Indigenous cultures? You can call us. You can send us a voice note. You can WhatsApp us. You can tweet us. So, because this has been the topic of our conversation, uh, we are now going to hear from someone who's actively involved in uh, spearheading an initiative that tries to do this, to create travel experiences centered on Indigenous communities. Um, we have joining us now Daniel Theo, the founder of Native Discovery. Daniel, good to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about Native Discovery. What makes your approach to travel and tourism different? Sure. So... As mentioned, uh, Native Discovery is a social enterprise that I found five years ago now that builds travel businesses together with the Orang Asli here in West Malaysia. We're primarily active in Selangor, so right on the outskirts uh, of KL City uh, in Serenda, uh, to be exact. And I think what really makes what we do different is the level of engagement we have with our Indigenous partners, where we really respect the autonomy that they have um, to shape and present their culture in the way that they want to. Daniel, what made you venture into uh, this form of tourism? What drew you into wanting to work with the Indigenous community? Um, could you give us a sense of the things that went into the making of this particular project? Sure. So I think um, acknowledging that I'm not an Indigenous person myself, um, I definitely did not really understand um, the indigenous culture present here in Malaysia to begin with. Perhaps maybe, uh, I, I want to say almost 10 years ago now, uh, was my first encounter with the Orangasi people, where I visited one of the communities for a volunteering trip. So you can imagine at that point, um, the knowledge, the impressions uh, that I had about the Orangasi people were quite a mixed bag of things, mostly drawn from like uh, internet, Google, like uh, one or two pages in my Sejara textbook from many years ago. <laughs> um, but when I finally got the, the communities and met them for myself, I realized that a lot of things that were presented to me by the media or by any sort of um, available resource weren't really representative of the people that I was engaging with in person. And I think um, that kind of planted the seed uh, that, you know, that there's a lot to break down here. And I think the side of themselves at the people that I met um, and what they kindly shared with me revealed them as a really like different type of people, hospitable, strong, um, and a lot of like countercurrent type of uh, qualities versus what is normally presented where it's always highlighted about perhaps uh, the challenges that they face, but they showed me a lot of their strengths, which made me think about you know, all the potential that uh, they could realize if they were given the opportunity and the right partnerships to do so. So you mentioned this already. You've also spoken in other interviews about ensuring that the Orang Asli communities are equal partners in this venture. How do you ensure this? I mean, talk to us about how involved uh, people from the communities are in your in these travel experiences. What roles do they play? Sure. So I think um, from an operational perspective, uh, the role that Native play, uh, just to give you an understanding of that first, is that we play the role of a marketer or curator from a customer perspective. So if you'd like to make a booking, if you want to find your way to these communities, um, Native plays that role. But other than that, most of it is actually carried by the community. So when it comes to the type of experiences we offer, the ideation, the co-creation, everything from the type of food that will be served, the hiking trails that um, guests go on, those are all actually um, created by the Orangasi people themselves and they play the role of hosts as well. 
So when you go there, most of the time, the orang asli are the ones that are leading the, those trips. And if there is any native uh, from my team representation at all, we play the role of more, uh, we call it like co-host. So kind of like a co-facilitator. Um, and when we talk about the autonomy side of things, so the idea is that the orang asli are equal partners in this uh, business that we have together, where, um, for example, like profits are split. Uh, 50-50, so they have an equal share of the reward that comes with it. There is no sort of employee-employer type of relationship. And they have the autonomy to choose uh, what is it that they want to do. So there is no nothing that's ever imposed from our end. So this is important as well, because I think um, as outsiders, or even if you're in the travel market, a lot of people have preconceived ideas of how the orang asli people are or should be. So I think that's really um, a differentiating point. Daniel, um, could you give us a sense of the kind of response you got initially, at least, from the Orang Asli communities when you put this idea to them? And what uh, were their concerns? Uh, were they skeptical or were they uh, embracing of it? Sure. So I think the Orang Asli people definitely are aware uh, of the opportunities that exist. For example, our partners in Serinda are already... Um, in a corridor where local tourism is right, there are so many campsites, so many different types of activities that happen there. So they're aware of the opportunities that exist. And um, in Saranda's case, especially like they wanted in, they wanted ways to participate in this, but they also were very aware of the risks that might come with it. So for example, like um, there are many questions around if you partner with someone, like, uh, will your relationship be equitable? Um, what will my role be? What might I give up in the process? And how can I make sure that I am an equal party in this? So I would say that our RNC partners are strong in the sense where they recognize what they want, like what their aspirations are, even though they can't necessarily articulate it in the same way that you and I might when speaking about, like, um, you know, our business aspirations. So I would say they were already quite receptive. I think it's more of the process of building trust uh, that we are we were the right partners for each other. Daniel, you you know mentioned a couple of things just now. You talked about hiking um, and so on. Actually, what is the experience? Uh, what are the experiences offered by Nature Discovery? Uh, yeah, so at Native, we're we're uh, to give an idea. Our standard like bundle experience is a guided hike. Uh, through what's called Bukit Berua, which is uh, one of the, um, shall I say, like uh, customary hills uh, that the Orangasli in Serenda steward over. So on that walk, um, you'll be shown like various parts of the forest, and there will also be a certain narr- oral narration by the Orangasli there about um, what's the significance of the land. Um, you might be able to eat some of the things that you find along the way as well. Um, if they're in season, you might find things like durian, tara. Otherwise, there might be just fun things to forage. Um, so you would do the hike. And of course, once you hike, you are probably a bit peckish. So as you come down, um, we would also have like our local partners who are great cooks, um, who would prepare an indigenous meal for you. So typically that includes like pretty unique things like samomo, if you've ever heard of that, which is kind of like, a, it smells like a stink bug, but it tastes amazing as a garnish. Uh, amongst other things. So the idea is it's more like nature immersion followed by like more culinary uh, experiences. And we also have like a homestay where you can spend the night and then do these tours if you want to be a bit more laid back about it. Yeah, I want to ask you about the the possibility of scaling up such a business because when you think of mass tourism, uh, you know, th- there's this idea that everything can be replicated fairly easy, easily without damaging, you know, uh, the community. But would that be true of this instance, especially with small communities? Um, I think that's a that's a good question. And I think so far we've discussed mostly about, you know, how, how our setup might work. But from a more zoomed out perspective, I would say uh, it is scalable, but not in the way, in the conventional sense where scale means more guests or more locations. But I think it's more about the depth of your offering. So for example, there are 869 Orang Asli villages throughout uh, Peninsula Malaysia, at least officially. Um, And if you were to say you wanted to run a tourism operation in every single village, I would say that... um, 
that might not necessarily be the uh, possible in the sense where every community has a different thing to offer and might not have the disposition or cultural aspects required for it to succeed. Um, so when it comes to replication, you have to think about that. Um, but in the case of Surinder, I think um, scale might not be about bringing in more guests because you're right to say that you know, every cultural encounter shifts and changes the community, which is not necessarily a bad thing either. But it really comes uh, with the community being able to express uh, their cultural ideas and um, deepening that kind of involvement. So, for example, right now we might do hikes, we might do lunches. But a very simple uh, example is you could also tap into things like, you know, craft heritage or even different uh, things that might emerge as you get to know the community better. And I think it will never really be about trying to go into the mass tourism market, but knowing where you sit. So for us as well, we look at more high value uh, travel, like smaller groups and uh, uh, value that people see to pay higher ticket sizes for that immersive, intimate type of experience. Daniel, I will be honest with you. Um, we haven't had a lot of messages on this conversation today, which um, sort of led us to thinking about whether this sort of deeper engagement with communities isn't necessarily for every type of traveller. Who are you appealing to with this? And is this perhaps something that is more, are you seeing more interest from uh, foreigners than locals, for example? Yeah, I think I think to be honest, like you know, if you want to engage on the philosophical idea for the importance of indigenous travel, I think it's some, definitely something not many people are acquainted with, and that's okay. But I do think um, it's growing in like the public consciousness as well. So when we first started, uh, most of the people that came on our tours were international travelers, essentially. So um, people who you know are already aware of indigenous travel. So a big market for us is like Australia. Um, the U.S., which already has some level of uh, indigenous communities there. Um, but what we saw uh, post-pandemic, especially, is that we have a lot more locals that come uh, and travel with us. I think uh, that's due to a little bit about the shift in our messaging, our marketing to cater more to uh, locals. But I think it also has a lot to do with um, a desire for Malaysians to engage more with the Malaysian identity. Right? And although it's not directly related where, for example, I am a Chinese Malaysian, let's say, uh, but a lot of my feelings of uh, Malaysianness come from my engagement with the Orang Asi people because it's by spending time with them, I learned a lot more about Malaysian history, Malaysian culture. And by engaging with that, it, you know, it gave me a more meaningful connection to not just the Orang Asi, but Malaysia as a whole. And I feel like more Malaysians are looking for that feeling, even though they don't necessarily have the words for it. So I, I, like my, my hope is that, you know, as we speak more about this topic, like um, we will find those words for it and so will the public. Daniel, if you could give us a um, sort of deeper insight into the messaging dimension of what you do. Um, what's changed in the, that messaging? Um, and I, I think this is important because I think we all struggle to find points of contact with the larger public around things that we, we think are important uh, in terms of shaping a much more compassionate and thoughtful society. Uh, sure. So I think um, maybe I'll talk about it from two perspectives. One is building support for the type of work that we do with Orang Asli, and another is on the travel end of things. Uh, so for the former, I would say that, you know, a lot of the work with the Orang Asli people is, uh, I, I would say, like charity or philanthropic in nature, where people want to help the Orang Asli people because they recognize that perhaps they are disadvantaged due to some historic uh, occurrences and like how things have gone. Um, but it comes from the perspective of charity, which is not wrong in any sense. But I think the way that we have positioned ourselves or the messaging around why you should support the Orang Asi people is because what is good for the Orang Asi is also good for us as Malaysia as a whole. Because you cannot separate the indigenous culture of Malaysia from our country and still think that you know we are a whole, a whole country, like complete in that sense. Where, for example, like um, if you want to talk about the practical numbers of the value of indigenous tourism, that I feel like can tangibly contribute to our economy as well. So I think it's shifting that perspective from, you know, it's just a charitable relationship to one where we can have some degree of like shared prosperity 
And I think this type of messaging helps um, build our organization and our body of work um, from a funder's perspective. Because, you know, we now have that conversation about how are you going to sustain what you do if the messaging is just by coming on this experience, you are supporting a community in need. Versus by coming on this experience, you're connecting with uh, one of the main custodians of Malaysian culture. I think uh, that's one aspect of it. The other in terms of connecting with the traveler and just making it attractive for them to come, I think it's really tapping into just the human value of it. Right? I think, um, you know, after COVID, definitely the outdoor market exploded, like hiking, camping, things like that. Um, but it's understanding, like, what do people look in those experiences and how can you um, use the indigenous edge right, on top of that? So for us, it's like changing the messaging from perhaps like not necessarily indigenous culture first, but it's more about what indigenous culture allows you to experience. So for example, like if you go to Bukit Gassing on a given Sunday, it might be super packed. But if you position it as by um, coming on an indigenous experience, you get to go on a hike that is a common private um, and offers you like this new insight as well. So it's kind of drawing that connection, right? So it's not come and visit the Orangasi. It's like you can do a hike led by the Orangasi and then you can slip in the importance of like culture while they are there. Daniel, what's ahead for Native Discovery? Uh, good question. I think I think it's um, really... Uh, so definitely we're still focused on the experiential side of what we offer. But we really want to go more into advocating for that um, indigenous, non-indigenous relationship and really reconciling that. So it's more of uh, growing the idea of like indigenous allyship here in Malaysia, which we don't really hear about, where it's about as a Malaysian person, how can I, or not not even just a Malaysian person, right? like globally, as a non-indigenous person, how can I be a good ally to indigenous people? So does that mean, um, do I vote with my dollar? Do I advocate for certain rights? Because I think tourism is a great tool for you to meet someone in person and break every stereotype you might have ever had. And also to build a more meaningful relationship where I see you as part of my community as well. Um, and I think that's the kind of work we are going into more intentionally. So to expand beyond just the scope of uh, travel. Daniel, thanks for speaking with us today. Perfect. Thank you for having me. That was Daniel Thio, the founder of Native Discovery, uh, who do a variety of travel experiences uh, along with the Orang Asli community. Um, let us know, are you someone who finds this interesting? Um, do you make a point of engaging with Indigenous cultures when you travel? Keep your thoughts coming. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.